sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Rumor and innuendo, your favorite bands, your favorite songs. My name is Brian. And I'm Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. And we're going to get into some stuff here. Thanks so much for sending us notes at wearethestoryguys at gmail.com and leaving us reviews, telling us you like us, maybe Brian more than me. Sometimes you like no, me more than they, him. You always like Murdoch more than me. It's totally fine. I, I, I am fine to play the role. Like if we were a country duo, I would be the all doing all the work and you would be all the looks. That's you know, right. which is totally fine. It's totally which, fine. Which, if we were a pop duo, I would be Andrew Ridgely to your George Michael. <laughs> You'd like just be art everywhere, and I would like have a guitar unplugged, just spinning around, uh, yeah, like yeah, yeah. like Ben Stiller pretending to be uh, in Cocktail, the movie, just making screaming noises. Yeah. So one thing we both love is not just the songs and the bands that we talk about, but I, I, I know I'm speaking for you, but I believe I feel like I can't. We're close friends. Sure. Um, we love the magic that happens when you get to see a group of musicians as a band come together and play those songs in the same room as you. We love live music. Yeah, absolutely. Rock and roll shows. And if we weren't thankful enough for live music before, if maybe we've taken it a little for granted over the years, over the last few years, we've realized how lucky we had it, right? And it feels yeah. very good to be back in concert venues. You and I got to do this a few times together, somewhat recent past. We saw Bully. Back yeah, you took me to go see Bully when I was having an emotional crisis and you picked me up <laughs> after I had been drinking Nashville Tennessee's Bully and the, the best part I think we talked about this on the show but the best part of that evening was when Bully was finishing their encore with a M- M- McCluskey song and yes. you were very excited about it but you were having to text me from the restaurant side of the venue because you were while you were being excited about McCluskey you were also eating tacos and I think the text message said, this song is good. Also, these tacos are amazing. Yeah. <laughs> you, you had to eat a lot of tacos that night. I a just, lot of tacos. You picked me up and I had to warn you that like, I didn't know how long I was going to last in the fiasco of, of that thing. So, it worked, um, it worked yeah, out. that was that was great to be kidnapped. I saw Metallica first after 500 and something days. That's who I saw first. That was interesting. And then we saw Beach Bunny together in May, which was a lot of fun. So Beach Benny, I saw Sylvanesso sometime in the spring. That was great. Yeah, and then um, I've I've been going a lot. You've probably been, you've too been much. A, you've I've, been seeing a lot of shows. Everybody, everybody. Now, one of these shows that I got to see recently, I, I took our producer Leif with me. We got to go see British punk rock singer songwriter troubadour Frank Turner, uh, and his band The Sleeping Souls. And I bring this up because if you're unfamiliar, Frank Turner is a guy whose life has been especially defined by live performance, touring since he was a teenager, playing in a band called Million Dead, transitioning about 20 years ago to this souped-up solo existence. And he's always been building his fan base and making his livelihood by touring all over the world. So two years without being able to do that, obviously a major mind melt in many ways. So when the world got vaccinations, he decides to dive back into touring in one of the most dramatic ways possible. The tour stop that Leif and I saw, and I don't know if you know this or not, but it was one of his 50 states in 50 days. Oh, no, I didn't know about this. Yeah, so he designed this tour. Um, and when I when I'd heard first heard about this, I wasn't all that impressed because I, I guess I hadn't really thought about the logistical nightmare that that is because this is common with me, right? Like, I'm you and I, we're sort of big picture guys. Well, sure, play 50 shows in 50 days. Rock and roll, man. That's awesome. How hard can that be? 
That I, I didn't know until I moved to to Denver, and this is twenty plus years ago. There's a Chuck Berry show, and Chuck Berry has to have Chuck Berry amps, like what's on the rider or whatever. And come to find out, working with the guys who are working on the show, that, like the gear wasn't there. So where where are the where's the next cities that big cities from Denver? Like Salt Lake City is eight hours west. Lawrence, Kansas is eight hours east. Cheyenne, there's nothing in Wyoming. Um, like, where do you go? So oh, yeah. those those drives, once you get, you know, west of the Miss- Mississippi and like the states, the population gets sparser. Like that's that seems to be where things would be kind of weird, you know, where you are out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, if I stop and put myself in the shoes of the tour manager, good God almighty, that's a level of logistical prowess that I was not built with. I find thinking about it overwhelming. First, I mean, you make a great point about the West. You haven't even talked about Alaska and Hawaii. Those are states, so that complicates stuff, They show are, yeah. (laughs) But sometimes I also just think about, like, what I accomplish in a day. Like, if you could just give me a day and say you don't have anything you have to do, I could waste a whole day doing almost nothing and then be like, where'd that day go? I don't even know where the day went, right? Yeah. Um, but there's there's no room for that if you're doing a tour like this. Every day you are in it. Now, Frank found some ways to keep his sanity and make it like maybe slightly easier. He didn't qualify that each appearance in each state would be the same show or have the same level of production. So what he did was some two shows a day where like he would do an acoustic show in the afternoon in Indiana and then come across the border into an evening show in Kentucky, like that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. So this meant he could have a few days off in the 50 day run, which I have to say seems wise and prudent and in keeping with what we now know about burnout and mental health in 2022. Uh, But in the press around this tour, I ran across mention of something that I didn't know. Um, As you can imagine, a stunt of this magnitude is not common. In fact, Frank is the first non-American because he's British, like I said, to play in all 50 states in 50 days. At least he is. Yeah, at least as far as any official record is concerned. But he is not the first person to have done it, period. Yeah. For that, we have to go all the way back, actually to the year that Frank Turner was born, 1981. And we have to talk about a guy who has a few things in common with Frank, actually, despite being more than 30 years his senior. A guy who also put his name in front of an iconic band. It's Frank Turner and the Sleeping Souls. But I want to talk about George Thorogood and the Destroyers. <laughs> ah, oh my God. That was so weird. <laughs> What are your thoughts on on, on Thoroughgood? Like you're having a reaction that's sort of my reaction when I talk about Thoroughgood, which is like, okay, the left, the left turn it out, Albuquerque hurts. <laughs> I don't know what to do with myself or my face. So this is this is real. So the the yeah. first person to do this stunt was George Thoroughgood, and he did it in 1981. So first, let's think yeah. about the technology that he didn't have that Frank Turner had at his disposal. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So he like booking shows and, and looking to see how they were forecasting and whether he was selling the tickets ahead of time where he was going. Like, I'm just there. I'm thinking about that. Is bad to bone, bad to the bone 81. Bad to the bone is not out yet. So it's in the, it's in the sets, but nobody knows it yet. Right. So we're going to talk about all this, but here's what I want to know. I mean, I just want to know first your relationship with Thoroughgood. You're seven in 81. And so I don't, know if i have the thoroughgood record yet i don't know i i had a live thoroughgood record at yeah, one oh, point yeah like, yeah 86 that ha- yeah okay so yeah. i had that so so think about that so i'm not even there in 81 no okay so I, I, since then what have your i mean how do you feel about thoroughgood now i mean you laughed I, when i said george thoroughgood oh i just i it's it's interesting because it's like i mean he's he's still doing it he okay, um, so we'll talk about this because that yeah. dude is underrated and underappreciated, in my opinion. Killing still, it, still, still killing it. Yeah, yeah. He's he's he still sells tickets. So so yeah, and so I don't, and I I'll be honest, I don't know if he's a state fair guy or a guy who who sort of is able or books like a little bit out of that. Like I'm not really sure. Yeah, he's I, probably spe- a state spe- fair guy. Is a fair way to say it. And speaking of State Fair, I'm just going to say it out loud. I want to go see Night Ranger, and you're it's welcome to come It's to happening. Okay. I'll, I'll okay. go to any show, especially with you, bro. We saw Billy Idol together. Oh, yeah, which I, that was, was my third time. Amazing. And dude, <laughs> yeah, dude my, my old, one well, my, my, not my favorite radio boss, Brian, huh? um, <laughs> but one, one I definitely had before you and I were working together. I thought his favorite band was Night Ranger because because Pete had seen them over twenty times, but his favorite band is the Screaming Cheetah Wheelies. I just wanted to be able also to say good. that out loud on this podcast. I, sometimes I like to see if we can get obscure bands like that mentioned on this show, just so we can put them in the uh, tags for the episodes. And somebody who gets bored and decides to search on Apple Music for Screaming Cheetah Wheelies might pull up this episode. Um, okay, so I'll talk about very good. I'll, I'll tell you what I think about Thoroughgood. I, I yeah. honestly, most of my life sort of ignored the guy. Always aware okay. of him, never went deep. And if I try to explain why, I think it comes down to this concept theory of mine that I'm sure we've talked about on this show before. And I know you and I have talked about, which is that when it comes to music, most of us are wired with a pop brain, which is the love of music based on melody, or a blues brain, the love of music based on math. And it's the Beatles Stones argument, right? And yeah. that's why I think the Beatles stone argument is an unwinnable argument because I think it has to do with the way your brain is wired. It's where the pleasure centers are. So if you get short circuited by melody, you're pop. If you get short circuited by the rhythm and the bass and the repetition that's foundational to blues, then you're a blues brain. Now, none of that is science. It's my incoherent rambling, but I, I, but I understand where you're, I understand what you're getting. It does slot in well here to explain that part of the reason I've never paid close attention to George Thorogood because this guy may be more blues brained than Keith Richards. May like if you if you think about it, um, maybe he is. I mean, Keith, Keith and and Ron Wood are like doing. Even though you could say that there's the blues is in there, Keith and Ron are doing something totally different. That's unique, right? right. Yeah, and they, so they, they exist together. And George doesn't have a George doesn't have a person to spar with. So great points and. George is a really interesting character to discuss because he sort of fits in a totally different category than most anyone that we talk about on this show because we're normally talking about people who are comp- 
composers, right? Who are bringing something to the conversation. And Thorogood is an interpreter. Yes. You, playing re, playing Reeling and Rocking by Chuck Berry. So like, yeah. he, 100%. You can read tons of interviews and articles, and you can see this emerge in just the way that George talks about himself. He doesn't think he's adding anything new to rock and roll. He is a delegate of the blues. And for most big successful rock bands, and we'll get into specifics, but Thorogood was crazy successful. And, and I think in 2022, we've forgotten how successful he was. But for most bands with big success, they seem to think that their reason, and some of this is ego, but their reason for existing and their reason people pay attention to them is they're inventing something new, right? Yeah. At right. least they're saying something or doing something unique. They have a voice that must be heard. I don't think Thorogood has ever been concerned about people hearing him. He wants people to hear the music he loves. And he's so committed to the cause, he'll spend his whole life running around performing this music from his heroes that came before yeah. him, often explicitly, because he'll do cover songs, like you mentioned, Chuck Berry, but yeah. always, everything he does is in the spirit of what's come before. And I think in this way, he's sort of a kindred spirit to rock and roll nerds like me and you, like music podcasters and bloggers and record store rats who are sitting around telling everybody what they think is great. But Thorogood was so committed, he learned to emulate it, and then he took the show on the road. Yeah. Because of him, I learned that Reeling Rockin' was by was a Chuck Berry song. So look, looked at my watch and it was a quarter to nine. Hey everybody, aren't we having, are we having, isn't everyone having a good time? And I was like, oh, this is fucking awesome. This, it's like, oh, it's Chuck Berry song. This is exactly what I'm talking about. He taught you about Chuck Berry and he does this all the time. We can just look at the hits here. Here's evidence for this point of view of mine. Let's talk about his best known songs. Who do you love? A 1956 uh, Bo Diddley song. Yeah. George adds some flair to it. But George never wants you to think it's his. He adds, you know, he added a lyric. Do you know what the lyric he added into that song is? No. Snakeskin shoes, baby. Put them on your feet. Got the good time music with a Bo Diddley beat. <laughs> he puts Bo did. He <laughs> name drops Bo Diddley in the song, so you know it's Bo Diddley. Right. Rather than having people try to ask you to remove the the thing from the from the song that you have copied. Or a sample from he name drops he puts it in person. In eighty five, he gets to perform that at Live Aid with Bo Diddley. Uh, let's do another one. One bourbon, one scotch, one beer. John Lee Hooker made it famous, and okay. I didn't know that either. So that's how first time I heard that song. John, George Thorogood. So George Thorogood taught you about John Lee Hooker, right? Now let's yeah. real quickly. Right. It was written by Rudy Toombs. It was recorded by a guy named Amos Milburn in 1953, and it illustrates this specific style of blues. It's called jump blues, which is a precursor to rock and roll that's popular in the 40s, basically characterized by up tempo beats and horns. But in '66, John Lee Hooker gets a hold of it, does a version of the song that kind of reinvents it. But in 77, for his debut album, Thorogood's going to take one bourbon, one scotch, one beer, and he's literally going to do a mashup, Murdoch. He takes two John Lee Hooker songs. The other one is called House Rent Boogie. He combines the narratives of the song to give the one bourbon, one scotch, one beer song a, a full character. In the live version of the song he recorded in 86 on that live album, you had... Inside the song, Thorogood adds a line where he's talking about the character packing up his belongings, and he says that he is packing up his John Lee Hooker record collection. Wow. He, he can get creative. He can put a spin on things, but he's always pointing it back to the guys that let him hear it's never about him. And there's so many examples, but I'll do one more. Bad to the Bump, which most of what we're going to talk about today 
predates Bad to the Bone. But the song adapts the hook and the lyrics of a Muddy Waters tune. It's called Manish Boy. Uh Which is Manish Boy. Right, exactly. I want you to leave me, baby. I have lots of fun. I'm a man. I spell him. H-I. Oh. It's that one. Yeah. And when George gets to give the song life and eventually success via this new platform that, what's it called? Um, Music television, MTV. Who's he put in the video? Bo Diddley. So long before anyone was using the term Easter egg to describe this practice, George Thorogood was unabashedly and unsubtly inserting Easter eggs to educate casual listeners about the blues into almost everything he did. And he was like, uh, and hey, props to him. He was he was putting African-Americans on MTV. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, I right. think if there's one criticism that you can lodge at him, it is that he is a white guy doing this music. But I think he knew the platform he had, and every chance he got, he was pointing to the guys who were doing it originally. It was never about taking credit for it, right? So Yeah, yeah. A guy Open, this... Openly. Openly talking about the influences where I'm not throwing any shade or side, side eye at the black keys, but they weren't openly like, it wasn't like this. So, you know, it's like, it's so funny that you say that Murdoch, because when I was doing this research, that was the first band that came to mind when I was thinking of a modern day comparison. I'm like, thorough good was basically what the black keys had been for the last 10 years. Right. These guys that are sort of taking this thing and doing their own version of it that's very derivative and reminiscent, but getting this new audience to think about it in a different way. And you're right. I mean, I do think Thoroughgood, but it just feels to me, revisiting this music, that Thoroughgood, his whole point, if you said, like, why are you doing this? He would say, like, I just am so freaking stoked about these records, and I just want everybody to know all about them. And and if they'll listen to me, I will tell them about them so a guy that's obsessed with music history and the birth of rock and roll like was he just born this way did he just always know he was going to be a musical ambassador someday uh it doesn't seem so he you know super excited i know nothing about it he he was actually going to be a pro baseball player he grew up in wilmington delaware he was in fact playing for a semi-pro team in delaware county Uh, In his late teens, early in his musical career, he's going to take time off the baseball season. Like even when he's like with the band and they're starting to get serious, he would take time off for the baseball season, even when he was recording an album. But the musical journey starts one night when he's 20 and he sees this guy, John P. Hammond. You say you've been hurting. Almost lost your mind. One or two love She treats you less than kind When things go wrong So wrong with you It hurts me too And he plays a concert And it's basically an acoustic thing and George gets inspired and thinks he can do an acoustic blues thing too. And so he tries, but at some point he gets this shot at a rowdy club gig. And so in 73, he thinks he'll fare better with a band and he calls this high school buddy of his who he remembers play drums. 
Jeff Simon, who's only sort of a drummer, but definitely has a set. And they play this gig and it goes well enough that they formalize what they will call the Delaware destroyers. And Ah, so it's there regionally. They're off to the races. Now, uh, it's hard to tell the thoroughgood story without making a pit stop to talk about rounder records. This is a record label started in the Northeast in 1970 by a couple of dudes who love folk music. When I say rounder records, does anything come to mind? Do you, can you think of artists or rosters or anything? No, man, but, but here's the thing is I've been reminiscing a lot just with my college radio station. It turned 40. And I remember when the rounder records started getting, sir. I remember when we started getting service from them and it never stopped and just, the roster seemed to be dense and, and it was one of those things where do we open ourselves up to this folk music? That's like, there's this kind of very American, like in some things that were very like folk bluegrass, things that, that we, that we weren't there. And then I learned a lot about other American music, from from the label. That's sure. the whole point. That's the whole point of these guys starting this. They literally start by putting out recordings of people playing the fiddle. Okay? A far fling from rock and roll or even the blues. They become known for bluegrass, like you mentioned. But seven years in, they start... They got enough sort of grounding that they're like, maybe we can expand our offerings a little bit. So they start looking for other things that fit in spirit, even if they don't fit in style. And they make a couple of interesting signings. In May 97, or May 97, May 1977, seven years after their uh, inception, Rounder releases NRBQ's All Hopped Up. And I oh, just, that's right. NRBQ. I, I, I just had to mention NRBQ as a shout out to our hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. But it's later that year that Rounder releases George Thorogood and the Destroyer's self-titled debut album. So wait a second. You're telling me this record label that... Seven years ago, was putting out single recordings, like basically field recordings of people playing the fiddle, is now putting out this blues rock guy. How the heck did this happen? Well, some of it's proximity, because both parties are in Boston at this point. But here is George talking about the early days of the band. Quote, we took every gig that we could get, but there wasn't very many that were suited for what we did. We were like a poor man's version of Hound Dog Taylor or something like that. You know, we played frat parties. They wanted people who play top 40. Most clubs did too, but the only way you could break into that circuit doing what we were doing was to make records. But in the meantime, we found a couple of gigs where we could just go in and blow the blues out. Some places we had to educate them when we went there. I got tired of that. I wanted to have a record out. I wanted to do what John Hammond did and Johnny Winter and the Almond Brothers and all those cats. I wasn't unique in that fashion. We just had to keep plugging away until we got that record. So how are they going to get to the point of making a record? For that, specifically, there is a person who has to show up in the story. And that person is a bus driver named John Ford. Forward, like the direction, not Ford, Ford like okay. the car. Got it. Okay. John yep. Forward is not a record company guy. He's not a music manager. He is a really big fan. And like I said, he's a bus driver. In 75, he goes to a Thoroughgood show. He stays after in this Boston nightclub. And strikes up this conversation, strikes up a friendship with George. And John Ford strikes me as a guy who just really wanted to be close to rock and roll, however he could. So somehow, and I don't know how he affords this as a bus driver, 
He agrees to fund a demo for George for the express reason of getting the attention of some guys that he knows at Rounder Records. Now, side note, we won't get distracted by this, but years later, there's a court case in which, and this is all forgotten history. I had to dig really deep for this. But it's about who owns these original demos. And you can read a legal brief that I found in the show huh. notes. Because John okay. Ford, were, well, they'll go to court. Thoroughgood, it's, it's literally called Ford versus Thoroughgood, I think. Um, but anyway, John Ford does get them in front of Rounder Records. Like, to hear this story, it sounds like this guy is full of it. But he convinces them that he can make this happen. He puts them in front of Rounder, but Rounder's hesitant. And this is a quote from Ken Irwin, who was one of the founders of Rounder Records. Thoroughgood was like a shot from a gun, Irwin remembered. He was all energy. The whole band just exuded energy and fun. And originally when we saw him, we felt he was way too rocky, and we were a Roots label. I think we talked to George, and he actually stated our place a number of times before we finally convinced ourselves that he was blues, but with higher energy and some rock influence. So they're, they're trying to convince themselves that this fits in their roster. Well, if we call it actual roots, like blues music, we can call it roots music, which makes it okay to be on a record label, right? They're having this identity crisis. Now, they convince themselves, and they sign George Thorogood. But remember, they've been putting out very niche albums. So when Rounder Records in the first year sells 75,000 copies of the first Thorogood record, it's a huge deal. Because that's not been the sort of output that they've been doing. And... Thoroughgood success will be described later by Irwin as, quote, a watershed moment. They will do the first three Thoroughgood records and then do the fourth, uh, the one that gives us bad to the bone, as sort of a joint venture, I think, with EMI. Rounder's going to go on to become one of the most influential and storied independent record labels ever. Yeah, They, they have a whole lot of other imprints. They acquire 50 Grammy Awards. They get acquired themselves in 2010 by Concord, but still to this day, they're putting out music from Alison Krauss, Bella Fleck, Shelby yeah. Lynn, and one of my all-timers, Kathleen Edwards. And this all got the juice it needed from the unlikely connection between a rock-obsessed bus driver and George Thurrock. Oh, how it's totally weird. They put out the Robert Plant, Alison Krauss. <laughs> yeah, they put out Raising Sand. Raising Sand. Yeah, 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 for sure. And. For sure. So I, I love this idea that George Thorogood is the is basically the reason Rounder Records works. Like I mean, they were doing okay, but they get to the stature that they're at now because of George Thorogood, which is a very unlikely thing that I think very few people would know offhand. So that's a really fun side route in this story, but it's not even actually what we're here to talk about. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I love talking about rock and roll history. Not as fond about talking about my immune system and my gut health. But if you get in a situation where you are having problems with those things, it becomes very, very important. So let's get you in a place where you're not having problems with those things. I say that because Athletic Greens was created by a guy who experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up on this complicated supplement routine that cost him 100 bucks a day. And he said, there's got to be a better way to do this. And that's when he came up with this. It costs you less than $3 a day. It's lifestyle friendly. doesn't matter if you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free like half of my house. Any of that is fine. This will still work for you, and it's going to do things to help your nervous system, your gut health, your immune system, your energy, your recovery, your focus, all that stuff. Find out. It's simple. All you have to do is head over to athleticgreens.com slash emerging and take ownership over your health and pick up a little 
daily nutritional insurance. They're going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do, athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Now, back to the show. Let's get back to where we said we were going, this crazy 50-50 cross-country tour. So was this just a crazy publicity stunt, a wild marketing scheme? I mean, maybe. But friend of the show and former guest, legendary rock journalist Joel Selvin, he said it this way, because he wrote some liner notes for Thoroughgood at some point. He said, quote, this wasn't show business. To George and the band, this was life. And I think that's a good way of thinking about it and realizing how serious Thoroughgood took this. This level of balls to the wall was how they chose to live. Now, this is illustrated by a few things. One of them, the fact that they were opening dates on the Tattoo You Tour right before wow. and right after the 50-50 dates. Wow. This is a quote from Thoroughgood. Quote, Bill Graham wanted us to play a whole bunch more of those dates with the Stones, but the 50-50 tour was already booked, so I missed out on some big gigs like Madison Square Gardens. Now, this is Thoroughgood is on those dates with the Tattoo You Tour that Prince is on. Oh, my God. Gosh, so we've really? t- yeah, we've mentioned this before. I believe it's in the again going to this former episodes footnotes business, but I believe it's the uh, drummers versus the rest of the band episode about where we spend a lot of time talking about Carmen to Peace. We talked briefly about this story, which we've never done on this show because the Prince Library, like the Paisley Park people, did a have done several big Prince podcast series, and they do an amazing episode on this. And so you should just go listen to that. I don't, I don't want to duplicate their work, but. There is a very famous gig on this tour where the lineup is Prince, Thoroughgood, maybe somebody else, and the Stones, and people love Thoroughgood, and they throw stuff at Prince. They just don't get it, and so he's actually there for that, which is crazy, and it's worth pointing out that this is like, we and we've said this a little bit because you asked about it, this is before Bad to the Bone. So if you know just one Thoroughgood, Thoroughgood song, it's it's probably that one. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and that tune gets played on this tour, but it isn't a reason people come to this tour because it hasn't been put out yet. Yeah, and so if you're familiar with him and the record comes out, if you had any connection to his live performance, you'd know the song. So the, the smashes he has at the time are Who Do You Love and One Bourbon. So those are those are out. Yeah, which are all right. But to your point, you're like, if you know his live stuff, and this is what a lot of people were were learning about him, right? And I think a lot of it had to be word of mouth. If you pull up late 70s, early 80s videos of Thoroughgood on YouTube, and you can find some from this tour, there's quite a few videos that exist. Um, Remind yourself, do this, because the electricity that this guy exudes on stage is remarkable. Yeah, right? Yeah, he was getting a lot of comparisons at the time to Springsteen, which doesn't make sense musically, but makes a lot of sense if you watch him on stage because he's got that sort of manic energy where, and I think that's what makes this story more remarkable is, and we'll talk about this when we get into some of the individual shows, but on this 50-50 tour, he's not playing an hour or 90 minutes. He's often playing two to two and a half hours every night. Gosh. Every night, which is crazy. If you And you just need to, to really understand how gargantuan this is, you need to watch some of these videos and see the amount of sweat he's putting on that stage. Like, this is not yeah. a guy who's coming out, like, this is not the Fleet Foxes, right? This is this is not a folk band on stools. 
Like it's this is a guy coming out and belief. ripping things up. I've, I've, I, that's my shorthand for a boring show, right? Because I like I have we never talked about this. I had a buddy years ago when the Fleet Foxes broke, and I was like, dude, I will go to almost anything, but I don't think I could sit through the Fleet Foxes. They're just so boring. And he went to the show, and I called him afterwards, and I said, "How was the Fleet Foxes concert?" And he said, "Well." I think, first of all, I would call it a recital, not a concert, (laughs) which is everything I needed to know, right? But that's not what Thorogood was doing. He was not doing recitals. He was doing these vibrant, amazing rock shows. Um, And I mean, so rock writer Joe Bonomo, he puts it like this. In 1980, Thorogood was lean and hungry, though he could smell his payday. And he had the nerve, humor, and intestinal fortitude, youthful energy, and rock and roll ambition to embark on something like the 50-50 tour. So, you want to talk about the stats of what actually happens on this tour? Yeah, yeah, because it, this, all this is super new and interesting for me. 50 days. October 23rd to December 11th, 1981. 11,243 miles. Uh, cumulatively playing before 150,000 fans. Gosh. He launches in Honolulu, but the only time he's on a plane or to get back and forth to Hawaii and Alaska. Otherwise, he's traveling between 200 to 500 miles a day. And this is the another key component of this ridiculous venture. They are doing this in a converted checker taxi. Um, okay. So they're driving 5 to 10 hours a day in a converted taxi. And they've modified it with a sleeping space. I have no idea how that works. Because they took some promotional photos of this, and you can see it. I don't know where they would sleep in the trunk. Like it's, it's bonkers. I don't know if they were like, they were riding three up front and one guy was sleeping and they were taking shifts. I don't know what was happening. Um, but both Frank Turner and George Thorogood have said similar things about one of the appealing aspects of a tour like this. And that is that it forces you to play quote, some places that maybe have never seen a live band. Thorogood's going to play places like Mandan, North Dakota, and Moorhead, Minnesota, and he tries to play at the Wyoming State Prison, which we'll talk about in a minute. Now, I mentioned that I never heard of Thoroughgood's attempt to do this before Frank tried it, and I was wondering if this was like a personal blind spot due to my lack of blues brain, but you hadn't heard of it, right? No, the Wyoming Prison? No, 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 the the 50-50 tour. No, I had not heard of this, no. Okay, I discovered pretty quickly in the research that most of what you pull up when looking for info about this is like, two or three versions of basically the same news article from around that time. And try as I did, I still couldn't find a piece where Thorogood explains like the moment or moments of inspiration that led him to do this crazy stunt. But what I did find was a fairly bare bones, but awesome blog that sprang up in the last eight to 10 years. There's a fan who saw the lack of info about this tour and decided to harness the power of the internet to improve the tour's legacy. This is, of course, in the show notes. But the address is, if you're just playing at home right now, thoroughgood5050tour.wordpress.com. And it's an amazing archive where this person has crowdsourced photos, reviews, ticket stubs, handbills, set lists, and venue history from as many of the 50 dates as possible. And it's really neat because so many of these venues are now defunct. So he, this person has found pictures from that time in 81 and then tried to get a current photo of what each venue looks like almost 40 years later. 
Now, back to Wyoming. One good example, Wyoming. Tour was going to stop at the state prison. Unclear as to what happened, though I can only imagine. Something keeps this from happening. So they end up at this like motor coach motel on the side of the road playing in their lounge, which the research says really should have only held about 150 people and definitely held more than that on the night in question, maybe 600 to 1,000, which is insane. Oh, that's crazy. On the opposite end, they play in Indianapolis at the Vogue Theater, which is a venue that still exists and that I may very well go uh, to at the end of the month to see Nico Case. So there's a few things that make this tour different than what Frank did. And that includes the fact that George did not take days off. And within a few days of finishing, he's back out opening for the Tattoo You Tour again. And he actually did 51 shows in 50 days because he does DC. Oh, my gosh. Here's, here's more thorough good in his own words. Washington, D.C. was the best. That was the day we played two gigs, D.C. and Baltimore. What a day it was. Insane. Insane. You see, we usually went to sleep about 6 in the morning when we were doing the eastern states, and we slept until 5 in the afternoon. But that day, we did an afternoon show, which started around 6, and then drove to D.C. for a show at 11. The only day I really needed my sleep so I could energize, I got about four hours of sleep tops because of some radio interview before the gig in D.C. I got nothing to eat. I was totally exhausted from the previous night. And at the interview, all this DJ wants to talk about is the Rolling Stones. Now, I'm really bummed because I'm wiped out and I have to do two shows. And to complicate things, the Baltimore gig is being filmed by the TV show PM Magazine. Of all the times I need my energy, I got Mm. none. Anyway, we did a two and a half hour show at Baltimore, drove to DC, did the show there, and it was animalistic. I mean, totally unbelievable. There was a riot in the crowd. We had to stop playing after the third song to calm things down. We were sizzling up there on stage. We were great despite fatigue. We got everyone fired up and then took them down with a ballad and took them right back up again. For me, it was the peak of the tour because it showed me how much I could really push myself. Wow. Far out. I mean, this is sort of par for George. Like, he was never stopping during this period in his career. On regular tours that weren't the 50-50 dates where they had some days off, they would frequently show up at local clubs on the days they had off and play under the name Sidewalk Frank. (laughs) Just to play. Just to play. Yeah, and they played all the time. All the time. That's like all he knew how to do. Yeah. And this was a guy that was going to be a baseball player. So what does this all lead to for George? What does he have to show for this? Well... I mean, it sets him up for a hell of a 1980s. Uh, he's going to have two records go golden that decade. And even as late as 92, he's going to get a hit with the song Get a Haircut. You remember that one? And I don't. Uh, get a haircut and get a real job? Uh, and while his mainstream popularity has waned, he and two of the almost original Destroyers still tour. They, this is the other thing that's so interesting. They are essentially the same band for going on 50 years now. Jeff Simon has been his drummer since day one. Huh. Still is. Bill Bluff joined right before that first album, and he's on bass. The newest member of the band is the sax player, who will celebrate his 20th anniversary with the team next year. I mean, wow. an underrated, under-the-radar yeah. success story. And, and, and someone who understands the roots and connections of rock and roll and... I mean, he's just being, a big, overgrown rock nerd. That's it. And legitimate, legitimate, and genuine with the same band members and then giving credit where credit is due for, you know, we could say here he's ripping off people, but 
he's doing it in a way that's not it's not ripping people off he, if you're name dropping them in every song right it, like and he's he's rearranging them yeah yeah so it's 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 kind of different um so yeah i mean couple of but it's, it's great i'm just gonna say it's fantastic it's it's uh i just can't believe we're talking about george thorogood it's the weirdest thing <laughs> couple of codas yeah i said frank was the the latest to do 50 shows in 50 days. And I said that George was the first. Yeah. But there's actually, this has actually been done three times. The other yeah. band, crazy enough to try it, the Melvins. Oh, wow. That makes sense. They do, they never stop. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> this is for bands who have insane, unhealthy work ethic, and the Melvins definitely qualify. 2012, they do this tour they call Melvins 51 because they count DC explicitly. So, um, and this is noteworthy because they were older than George or Frank at the time of attempting. So George is 31, Frank is 40, 41, and uh, Buzzo is like 48, almost 50 when they do this in 2012. Makes uh, sense. And I just saw a, a tour announcement for the Melvins at one of our mutually our mutual favorite clubs um, coming up here in September. So those guys still aren't stopping. Sweet. If you've ever seen them, it's interesting. It's definitely, um, you don't know what you're going to get. This version in 2012 was what they were touring with as Melvin's Light at that point, which I mean, I think means they didn't have two drummers and two bass players or whatever the weird stuff they do is with multiple rhythm section guys. And also, I think with a production crew, you had a truck with a trailer behind it and not like a little trailer. There was like a tractor trailer and then like another thing behind it versus having two cabs spending all of that gas. Wow. Um, wow. I don't want to tell you everything about all that. Just how many how many times up. have you seen the Melvins? Uh I've seen the Melvins twice. And for if for some reason you're sitting at home and you're like, I've heard the name, but I get them a little confused. This is a band that very openly influenced Nirvana. But how about Kurt Cobain was a roadie? Yeah. So huge that, that's, that's huge that's, band that's, in rock history. Yeah, that's that's the easiest way to kind of get to it. Um, is that that was a gateway band for Kurt. Um, but they're also, in some cases, totally unlistenable. Um, and there's sometimes where the multiple drums thing is a little heavy. Yeah. Um, and I, I know at least one of the times I saw them, they did Beatles covers, which made things completely different. So, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're guys who, it, it's like an ongoing experiment. Right. Like it's, it's not even, it's just, it's just sort of this fascination. And again, it's, it's different than Thoroughgood, but it is, is a rock and roll or music fascination and obsession that drives them and not, oh, maybe this would be a good career fit or whatever. Right. It is, it is really just about, we don't know how to do anything else, which is cool. Yeah. No kidding. Well, neither do we. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously. (laughs) Uh, We've just talked about Thoroughgood for 45 minutes. Okay. So second side note real quickly, back to Thoroughgood. Um, have you ever, I just feel like I have to bring this up before we finish. Have you ever heard the argument that bad to the bone is an anti-circumcision song? Oh my God. These are the amazing things I learn in research. First one. No, I've never heard that. (laughs) Two, we need two, two, we need an anti-circumcision song, right? Okay. Check out this article in the show notes. It's from Mel magazine, which is not really a reputable source, but they talk. Is it a a magazine about foreskins? Yeah, well, (laughs) sort of. Um, 
Check out the lyrics. I've never paid attention to this. These are actual lyrics from Bad of the Bone. And this is like if you were going to make this argument, these are the lyrics. The nurses all gathered around and they gazed in wide wonder at the joy they had found. found. The head nurse spoke up, said, leave this one alone. alone. She could tell right away that I was bad to the bone. Yeah. So Ah. pro foreskin activists might wonder, would nurses tell the doctor to leave this one alone if it was for any reason other than to protect his uncut penis? Oh my gosh! I can't believe you just started talking about uncut penis. Yeah, uh, so listen, after our dead kidneys episode, all things are on the table, folks. No, true. folks. Yeah. No, I'm going to talk about it like a doctor. I'm not going to be gross, but the penis is probably going to be mentioned. Uh, this has been a heck of a ride. I know. You know, I, I feel good about a thorough good episode. I feel like he he deserves one after I doing do all too. this research. I, I do too because there's people that are in this business that we love that are musicians. Let's just say there's musicians we like. Let's take business out for a minute. Makes it sound like we're talking about industry and work. <laughs> there's people that do this that are artists and that work and that they work their asses off and they they love what they do. It's their yeah. trade. It's yeah. their only occupation. It's yeah. the thing. And they don't get the notoriety for a, an array of reasons. I mean, an array of reasons for a Thurgood is like he hasn't had a hit in um, 40 years, right? Like, that's a thing. But he can still sell tickets. Like, he doesn't have to put out a new record to sell seats. Um, and really, like, it's, name the other white guy in the early 80s who was on MTV playing blues songs. Yeah, not a lot. I... I pull in a blank. Greg like, Greg Ken. <laughs> I was about to say Jeff Beck, but like not really. No. Uh, it is funny to look at, uh, and this is another thing that that really cool uh, website that documents the tour does is it tries to narrow, like, to figure out who opens at these different shows, right? And so there are some interesting folks who show up on these bills, including Screaming Jay Hawkins and. Uh, some other folks who, and, and then also there's people who the the authors on this website are trying to figure out exactly who they were. Like maybe they've they've seen the name on a handbill and they we they go to look them up and there's sp- specifically a band. I'm trying to remember what they were called, but there was a band where they were like, in our research, we found three bands in the early 80s who went by this name, (laughs) but we think it's this one, and they had an EP and 81 on this record label. So, I mean, there's a lot of really cool uh, nuggets of music history wrapped up in this, even beyond Thoroughgood, just the parts of the country he was in and the acts that supported him and, and the things people got to see and how much they paid for tickets. So, like, a lot of these ticket stubs, you get to see the prices, so between seven and eleven dollars, typically, oh. it's it's all really uh, fascinating stuff. I, I encourage you to check all that out in the show notes. And if you want to get involved in the show, the website is uh, wearethestoryguys.com. The email address is wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. And you can also uh, leave reviews, check things out on Facebook when you look up the Story Guys. Uh, anywhere you download the show, let us know uh, how you're feeling about it. We appreciate that. And uh, until next time, Murdoch, what should people keep doing? Da na 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 na. Keep telling stories. Da na 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 na.
Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.